for June 15th, 2016. This is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. American coal. Nuclear energy. Natural gas. Hydro. Solar power. Wind turbines. We're becoming a monumental exporter of natural gas. This boom in the United States is not a bubble that's going away. The oil's still there. I'd rather pump it from another country and save ours, and then when the rest of the world runs out, hey, guess what? We can yeah. still turn on our lights. We've run into a problem where we have constraints, where there are limits now. The new phase we're going into related to the exhaustion of these resources, there's no replacement. This is a one-shot affair, and we're unprepared for it. Really, we do not have very much more time to get a handle on this problem. It's better to get to a renewable future, a sustainable future, sooner rather than later. Get there before we do the environmental damage, not after. Sunny. Yesterday my life was filled with rain. Sunny. You smiled at me and really it's a pain. Now the dark days are gone. Now the bright days are here. My sunny one, joy so sincere. Sunny one, so true. Welcome to the Energy Transition Show. I'm your host, Chris Nelder. Renewable energy deployment is picking up steam in Latin America, and like the rest of the developing world, it seems to be moving even faster than it did in the developed world. No doubt that's partly because the industry has finally reached the point where wind and solar are simply the cheapest options around. And it's partly because a lot of the kinks have been worked out, and those technologies are finally ready to scale. But it's also because the cost and the sheer volatility risk of remaining dependent on fossil fuels has just become too burdensome. And because the pain being inflicted by climate change, particularly the various ways that drought and heat wreak havoc on the power grid, has just become too intense. For all of these reasons, the developing world has realized that renewables are their best path into the future. And they are making tracks to build their rapidly growing power grids around renewables instead of fossil fuels or nuclear. But now there are new risks to contend with. Solar and wind project developers are seeing the cost of projects they pitched a year ago suddenly escalating because their currencies have fallen relative to the U.S. dollar. And that in turn has a lot to do with the macro picture and the falling cost of oil, as we discussed in Episode 9. Meanwhile, policymakers have their own challenges. What's the right way to compare the cost of a utility-scale solar project to, say, a new natural gas-fired power plant? And how much risk can they really tolerate for drought killing their hydropower, or for that matter, their water-cooled coal power plants? And what's the trade-off for a country like Brazil, for example, that's struggling with a budget tightened by falling demand for their commodity exports, but that also wants to lift an undue tax burden on renewable energy projects in order to encourage their deployment? And what would be the best or the most practical path forward for a country like Brazil in the long run? More residential rooftop solar? or more utility-scale projects? And if the answer is distributed residential solar, how can you make those projects easier to finance and then reduce the financing costs when it's so hard to determine the creditworthiness of the customers? These are all tricky questions, and the answers are far from straightforward. So I turn to one of the most knowledgeable thinkers I know of in the domain of financing Latin American renewable projects, Adam James, 
Deputy Director of Global Strategy and Policy at Solar City, former Global Demand Analyst for Green Tech Media, and the founder and CEO of the Clean Energy Leadership Institute, an organization devoted to providing young people with the tools they need to impact clean energy policy. He's a very creative and thoughtful guy and a real leader in the field, and I'm thrilled to have this conversation with him. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Adam, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. Great to be here. Before you made the leap to Solar City last fall, you were my favorite analyst on renewable energy in Latin America by far. I always found your articles on that for Green Tech Media to be a must read. And I'll link to your archive at Green Tech Media there in the show notes. But I'm sure you've still got your finger on the pulse of Latin America. So let's start there. Like, first of all, what kind of prices are we seeing for wind and solar systems down in Latin America? Yeah, well, thanks for your kind words as well. Got to say, it's a pretty small pool of analysts who are looking at Latin America solar. So That's I'm, true, and you're I'll one of the few to, who writes in English. So I'll, hey. try to be, <laughs> I'll try to be flattered. I mean, as far as pricing is concerned, what we've seen is that pricing has come down very, very fast in terms of PPA pricing in most of the key markets in Latin America, which I would kind of put three at the top, which are Mexico, Brazil, and then Chile as kind of being the biggest and the, the ones where we've gotten the most evidence to kind of see what direction prices are heading. There have been a few other auctions in other markets, in, especially in Central America. So we had an auction in Panama. We've had some direct procurement happen in Honduras. And in all those areas, you know, Jamaica, uh, we've seen that the PPA prices have gotten lower and lower over the last three years. The challenge really has been, in, in my opinion, that Anytime you get record low prices, you got to remember that there's another side to the equation, which is what kind of a return are the investors in those projects getting? And the lower the PPA, all things being equal, the lower the returns are. And so, so low, low prices are not always good news when it comes to investment. And so in some cases, in Panama, for example, you know, we saw these rock bottom prices, but then none of those projects really materialized. Mm. There's a lot of other kind of nuances here, especially around, you know, in Brazil, the currency risk. So a lot of projects got cleared at maybe $100 a megawatt hour, but then the currency just nosedived. And a lot of those projects are worth about $60 a megawatt hour now. So what used to work, you know, a year ago or a year and a half ago with currency at those levels no longer works today. Gotcha. So what, what kind of prices, though, are, are we actually seeing, especially for solar? Well, in, in dollar terms, I mean, we've seen that the prices in the most recent Mexico auction were very, very low from, you know, between four and six cents for solar and wind. In the Chilean auctions that have happened over the last two years, they've come down from around eight to nine cents down to between six and seven cents. And in the Brazilian auctions, we've seen prices consistently kind of in that $80 to $100 per megawatt hour range. So you're seeing a trend heading down, definitely. But as I said, the, the counterweight here is what kinds of returns are investors expecting? And I think that given the risk in a lot of these markets, both country risk and currency risk, there's definitely a floor for those PPA prices and where they can be without significant cost reductions. And I think we're, we're getting closer and closer to hitting that floor given the cost of capital. Right. Obviously, it can't be free. And obviously, there are financing costs and you know, anytime you're getting down close to four cents a kilowatt hour or forty dollars a megawatt hour, you're pretty close to the bottom there. I mean, we've recently heard about this project in Dubai that's come in at 
just barely under three cents per kilowatt hour, $30 megawatt hour, which is amazing. And that's unsubsidized. But of course, that's in the Middle East. You know, it's the most sunshine abundant place on the planet. It only gets you so far. The cost of the project, you can get that down pretty low. And then the cost of capital is really where you get to pull a lever in a place like the Middle East. So if you're willing to get very, very low returns, you can certainly make a three cent PPA work. But but that's but that's not going to be the case everywhere. And, yeah. and I think, again, that that's the important thing to remember here is that record setting PPA prices are only partially indicative of success in the industry. The question you have to ask is why and how are you able to get those prices that low? And the answers to those questions may lead you to the conclusion that you have some success. If it's because costs are coming down, that's great. If it's because your cost of capital in public markets is lower, you know, that kind of thing is great. But if it's because you're accepting unrealistic returns, that's probably not so good. You know, if it's because you're relying really heavily on a subsidy that may disappear the following year, that's not so good. So I think the why are you able to get such low prices is more important than just taking the prices themselves as a signal of where the market is. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, especially if it means that you're taking a bid that's so low that the developer isn't actually going to deliver on the product. That's exactly right. Um, yeah. So just to be clear, the numbers that you were just talking about were unsubsidized numbers, yeah? Yeah, that's right. That's right. So they're still really impressive. And I think the place that they're the most realistic and that they are good news is in the Chilean market. You know, Mexico, I think that a lot of those are loss-leading projects. So I don't think that very many of those projects are going to be making money. In Brazil, certainly very few of those projects are going to be making any money. The Chilean projects are actually pretty robust, and I think the developers and the investors will be making money off of those projects. They've got a, a kind of a best-in-class auction structure in the Chilean market that I've really admired, how they've put it together. They've started bidding by what time of day the project kind of has output rather than just a flat kind of megawatt requirement. Really? So in other words, they say, who can bid whatever the lowest price you can for the hours of 2 to 5 p.m. And then you can bid into that block. And that means that solar, which can consistently deliver at those times, can bid really competitively against gas or, or other things. Whereas in some other markets where you have to provide a firm power commitment, that's harder. And so I think that kind of auction structure is really great. And I, I think we'll see it other places too, like Brazil, where they've recognized that it's not just about the price of energy, it's about the value of that energy. Because, you know, who cares if you can get hydropower at $20 a megawatt hour if you hit a, a drought and you have no water, right? So, like, in those moments, it's worth paying $80 a megawatt hour to have solar built because it can show up when the drought hits, whereas hydro can't. And so there's a value component to this that I think the Chilean auction has done a really good job of structuring itself to reflect. So the Chilean auction, that's a reverse auction, yeah? Yeah, that's right. Okay. So I guess you're kind of edging into the next question I wanted to ask, which is how do these PPA prices for these wind and solar projects, or I guess we're really mainly talking solar here, how do they compare with the conventional fossil-fueled alternatives in those countries? Pretty well. You know, I think what we're seeing is that in some cases, these countries are, are setting up auctions that are renewable-specific. So you don't have renewables going head-to-head -head necessarily with gas or, um, or even sometimes like hydro, you know, they'll have non-hydro renewables hmm. carve-outs within the auctions so that solar and wind are competing against each other rather than against those other resources. But really, 
they're coming pretty close to being competitive with the cheapest things in the market, which tend to be hydro and gas. And you know, as I mentioned, I think that one thing that these auctions don't do a very good job of recognizing in general is the value that resources provide and, and the risk that you take on as a consumer with bets that you make. So gas might be really cheap to build, for example, today, but if gas prices triple, you're in a situation where you're going to be paying a lot more for the energy that's being produced if it's being bought on the spot market. And that's a risk that gets shifted to consumers. As I mentioned with hydro, it might be really cheap to build, but if you hit, get hit with a drought, you know, like what happened in Brazil, then you have rolling blackouts. That's right. So I think that the direction that we're heading in Latin America is starting to kind of lead the world in this is looking at what does a well-balanced, diverse portfolio of energy assets look like and how do we get there rather than just having this simplistic, what's the cheapest thing approach. And, and you know, the system planning approach includes risk, it includes volatility, and it includes the unique contributions that certain assets can bring. And, and it's, it's more of a value question than a cost question. Yeah. And as you point out, it's it's not really straightforward to make an apples to apples comparison against the fossil fueled alternatives. I mean, not only is the character of the power different, you've got variability versus firm power and so right. on and so forth, but you're cutting a 20 or 25 year PPA for a solar project and you're not going to get a 20 year PPA out of anybody for a natural gas fired power plant. Right. They'd have to buy an awful lot of gas up front or get a firm contract up front, which again, that kind of thing isn't impossible to do. But, you know, I would just point out that, you know, we've had a lot of these booms and busts throughout history, you know, throughout the last hundred years, but they tend to be 15 year cycles, you know. So every time we get burned by making a series of really bad investments that look good at the time, by the time the people who have made those bad investments and have gotten burned, they cycle out of the industry. And then there's a whole new flock of people who rush in ready to get burned again. And that's happened in the U.S. with natural gas once before. And it, you know, it looks like it's likely to happen again in the U.S. And I think that fortunately what I'm seeing in Latin America and in some cases here is that, that that shift to the value question is one that breaks that cycle of, of easy money and easy contracts on day one and focuses a little bit more on the big picture. And of course, you know, that's putting aside climate, which is a silly thing to put aside because of how large and impactful it is and how much it kind of exacerbates these problems. Like if you're worried about investing in hydropower because you're afraid of normal levels of drought, that's not something that's going to get better over the next 10, 20, 30 years in a world of, of increasingly worsening climate change. And I think that utilities are beginning to recognize that because they're getting hit with really, really heavy consequences, even today, for the decisions that they've made over the last 30 years. That's right. And the uncertainty is high, too. I mean, nobody can actually give you a good risk-adjusted outlook on the probability of drought hurting hydropower for the next 30 years straight. Like, nobody knows. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I mean, in Latin America, they're just particularly exposed to that kind of risk. You know, Brazil, certainly, but a lot of Central America is as well. And that's why Central America has really upped its game a lot over the last three years and started investing a ton in solar and in wind. It's funny sometimes the academic conversations we have or the, the pundit conversations we have about things like variability sometimes just go in circles while, ironically, you know, utilities in Central America have charged ahead and just started developing those assets. And they have relatively small grids and they're going to find a way to make it work because they know that it's important. And I think a lot of good decisions kind of get made that way sometimes by testing things out and by making commitments to move in a different direction. And 
and being committed to solving the problems as they arise. Now, you know, in places like Central America, I think that there are likely going to be some issues because they've invested in lots of large assets rather than many small ones, which are much easier to manage. But I don't think they're anywhere close to hitting a point where that's going to really derail them in terms of the way that their energy infrastructure is set up. You know, speaking of Brazil and the drought problem, I remember about a year ago watching the news pretty closely about the problems they were having in Sao Paulo, keeping just domestic water availability going. Do you have any idea what's what's been the outcome there or, or how they've managed over the last year? No, I mean, the, the part of it that I have tracked is just kind of the drought levels as they relate to their reservoir and their reservoir reserves, because there's a a clear correlation between what happens with the reservoir levels and what assets they have to fire up yeah. that they typically have standing around. And so, so what I, what I saw over the last summer, you know, was prices skyrocketing, you know, 300, $400 a megawatt hour. And the fact that that, that happened and the utilities still had, had that plus rolling blackouts, you know, even with prices there, they couldn't provide power. And now they've had to go back and ask for an emergency rate increase that's been passed along to, consumers. Hmm. And it's not a good time. I mean, in Brazil right now, just macroeconomically, not a great time to be going to the people and raising their electricity bills. (laughs) So it's just, it's really odd to me in Brazil, at least that, you know, I think there is a country that, that their auction process could really use some work because they've really kind of, they've put a ceiling on the price, but no floor. And, And they've said that that's to protect consumers partially, which I understand. But I think that they're missing the point a little bit here that Bidding the price down from $100 a megawatt hour when you're paying $400 a megawatt hour over the summer is crazy. Like you would do very well to lock in solar at $100 a megawatt hour, and it would be much more likely to get built than when you bid it down into oblivion. Yeah, locking in 10 cents a kilowatt hour is not a terrible thing. Right. Come on. Yeah, that's not. <laughs> and, and again, I think you, especially if you think about it in terms of what is the value that you get from that contract, and, and it, if it simply is just a hedge, against risk that's worth something like you can say is that risk worth two cents to you and if it is then that's effectively an eight cent ppa right right? and i think that you know if you just look at millions of dollars spent over the summer because of volatility if you want to put a price tag on on risk a price tag on volatility there it is and you just have to ask yourself how often are we going to be paying that and and as i said earlier i am afraid that they are going to be paying that price more and more often because drought. Yeah, that's right. And and nobody's ever going to have to go apply for an emergency rate increase for a solar project. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Right. And and that's the kind of risk that, again, never enters into these sort of comparisons to the alternatives. You could have an extended eclipse, I suppose, for maybe a half year or (laughs) nine months or something, some kind of serious risk like that 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 poses. But but odds are, if you want to, if you want to bet on something, I would much rather bet on the sun coming up than rain falling at levels that it has in the past. Or Mr. Burns could raise that giant shield and block out the sun, and then you yeah. know, all the rooftop yeah. solar would stop working. Yeah, it's one of the silliest things today in, in the policy discussions is, is that idea of, of variability, and I think sometimes totally misses the fact that variability is proven to decrease with geographic disbursement. So it's one of those problems that gets solved by ramping up, not by ramping down. And in places like Brazil, actually, they've done a very good job. Not, you know, I don't want to be too down on them. They've done a very, very good job on the distributed generation side for promoting distributed solar generation 
for all the reasons that we've just talked about, that they recognize that having those assets spread across their grid will do a lot to, to strengthen it and that they provide a real value, including shaving peak and just reducing overall, reducing demand on the grid. So they've done basically everything that they can do to set a positive regulatory environment for distributed generation. A lot of the credit for that goes to their local trade association. And I'm really optimistic about the outlook for for distributed generation actually in Brazil over the next few years. Now, does that have something to do with their approach to net metering? Yeah, so they've increased their the system size cap. So they've increased the size of systems that are eligible for net metering, which is good, and made multi kind of family condos and things like that eligible to net meter. So you can do community solar mm. stock projects, which is kind of innovative. I'm trying to think of where else has regulations that are as good for that as Brazil does right now. I mean, we're only beginning to get to that point here in the U.S. Yeah, so those things are really good. They also kind of cleared up what had been an issue in the past. Brazil has got a lot of wonderful things about it, but the taxes are not one of them. So they very, very heavily tax everything. And one of the problems that distributed generation had been having is that the gross electricity gets taxed but then you get compensated for your net electricity consumption. So in other words, you know, they would, if you consumed 100 kilowatt hours that day, they would charge you for 100 kilowatt hours and, and tax you for 100 kilowatt hours, but then only compensate you for 50 kilowatt hours back if that's what you exported to the grid, and that would not include tax. So hmm. that's maybe insignificant in a country where taxes are low, but when they're as high as they are in Brazil, that actually made the, the paybacks for those systems a lot longer. It, it, you know, right. So... Just, just simply by eliminating the tax that they had on gross electricity consumption, they've helped the market kind of leapfrog ahead significantly from where it was this time last year. And that was a state issue where the states really stepped up and, and did a lot of leadership. And we've seen a lot of that in Brazil. States stepped up and put on the first auction for utility-scale solar. And states are stepping up to pass the tax breaks and, and, and kind of tackle these local issues. So yeah, so it's been really encouraging. What about utility scale in Brazil? How, how are they doing with like utility scale solar? And are they also doing that with a reverse auction? Yeah, yeah, they are. So there was a state auction that kind of kicked things off in uh, Pernambuco. And that cleared at, you know, about $100 a megawatt hour. But then almost none of those contracts have actually gotten built out. Because between now and, you know, I think that was in December 2013. And between then and now, the, the currency has depreciated so much that contracts that were being paid in reais, but you know you had to kind of like finance them in U.S. dollars. You had to finance the building of the power plants in U.S. dollars. That that's become almost impossible. Like the math there has become almost impossible to make it pencil. And you're kind of boxed into this strange situation right now with their auctions, where you can get lower cost capital from the National Development Bank in Brazil, but to do so you have to use local content. And the local content that does exist is pretty expensive, and there's not enough of it to meet demand mm -hmm. from the auctions. And because it's more expensive, it's actually a little bit of a toss-up as to whether it makes more sense to build a utility-scale project using local content with that cheaper financing, or just to pay the premium to finance in dollars and, and hedge your currency risk, but get to use cheaper equipment. It's, you know, it's, it's really yeah. tough to make them work. Yeah, yeah. So... They've procured a lot of solar, utility-scale solar and wind. And wind has been successful in Brazil for a long time, so less worries there. But they've procured a lot of solar over the last two or three years. And 
Now it's just a question of, you know, can these developers make it work given high interest rates, given the lack of local supply, given the currency risk? And it's not a job that I would want to try to make all that stuff work. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the currency risk aspect in particular has just so changed the game across the energy sector over the past three years. I mean, it's it's been a huge part of the oil price decline. It's been a huge part of the changing value or, or price of, of solar projects and wind projects. The pain being felt by especially emerging market currencies has a lot to do, I think, with general decline in commodity demand. It's been a real issue, and, and I wonder how that has changed the outlook since 2013 in ways that really I think most people don't really appreciate because, I mean, who watches currency markets unless they're a trader or an investor or somebody who really needs to do that? I totally agree. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's that two things I would add. I mean, one is that it's a really difficult problem to tackle. India has actually proposed some kind of interesting ways of solving this problem that we can talk about. But there's really not a good way to tackle that issue because somebody just has to assume the risk. Right. And there's markets for that where that gets priced, but it, it adds a big premium onto your borrowing. That can certainly be a big problem. The other kind of observation that I would make on the currency side of things is that what it encourages, is, I think, is it encourages local development. It encourages you to find local debt and encourages you to find local equity. And that kind of puts a little bit of a ceiling on growth in a lot of cases because bringing international markets, you know, money markets in just tends to get you access to more efficiently priced capital, especially when you're trying to get to scale. So you might be able to do some one-off projects in a country where there's a lot of currency risk by tapping into local, local debt and local equity. But it's just always going to have a ceiling on it, at least on the local equity side. And so I think for the overall renewables market to really, really grow, we've got to put some serious thinking into this currency risk issue and figure out how to, how to mitigate it. What if they lifted the requirement for local content? I mean, how much would that help? It depends on the country. And I mean, in Brazil, it would help a lot to get access to local debt at competitive prices. But but then it, you still have the problem of your contracts are in reais. And so if your equity is in dollars, then you're still in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. But then there's these big, and this is why NL has been so competitive in Latin America, because NL is large enough that they actually have internal currency hedging because they have such an active presence in these markets that they've got local money. You know, They've got local capital, local equity that they can put into those projects and kind of keep it all in the country. So those big conglomerates like Enel and NG that own all of the utilities and all of these businesses throughout Latin America have been really, really competitive in the auctions for that reason and because they have larger balance sheets so they can access to much cheaper debt overall when they're doing their development. They're hardly plucky upstarts, but they are compared to those guys of like SunPower and First Solar and you know the artist formerly known as Sun Edison to actually get those projects <laughs> up and running without having access to things like OPEC. And XM financing, that's where they have a little bit of an edge in those auctions. But yeah, it's tough. It's really tough. And, and I'm not sure if there is a good answer. India had, had proposed, but it hasn't enacted a program to charge all the developers a small fee. And that fee goes into a big pot of money that is in turn used to provide a, a currency hedge for, for everyone's contracts, which in principle, I really like that idea. I'm not an expert at financial markets enough to understand if that will be successful, but I like that kind of innovation in this space. 
Well, you know, since you mentioned Sun Edison, I, I wonder if maybe they should just change their ticker symbol to an unpronounceable symbol. What do you think? Yeah, for so long, there's a lot of people who are trying to buy projects who would already consider their name a little unpronounceable <laughs> because they just did not want, you know, I mean, it was hard, right? I, I know a lot of people who have been in, to keep the lens on Latin America, who have been in Latin America trying to buy projects for a long time and have felt like, it was just impossible to really get any deals done because you had Sun Edison swooping in and offering super low prices on the development side, PPA side, because they could roll it up into their yield co and sell it. So I actually think there's probably some quiet rejoicing going on at the moment. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious about that. I mean, just for those who don't know, before it went bankrupt, Sun Edison was the largest international player in distributed solar. That's correct, yeah? Yeah, I would say that they probably were the largest, if not one of the largest internationally for distributed solar. Okay, and I, and I wonder if its bankruptcy now will slow down the development of distributed generation in the developing world, or if its leadership in the sector will now just pass to another company, and if so, who's in position to take over that role? And for that matter, who's going to step in and capture the projects that Sun Edison had under contract and can't execute anymore? I, I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? Who's going to be the next Sun Edison? Yeah, I think when it came to global distributed generation, even Sun Edison wasn't the next Sun Edison. They, they were criticized a lot for kind of doing too much too fast. And I don't really have any thoughts or opinions on that other than to say that, that they did do utility scale development really, really well. But in a way, like their core business was never launching residential or commercial projects overseas. It always kind of looked like more of an afterthought because they were already in a market. So I think that they're... There has been and there continues to be space for someone to step in and do residential and commercial systems at a global scale. There's just a lot of challenges to getting that done. And it was, you know, there are challenges that Sun Edison ran into. And, and there are challenges that I think any company who wants to go global when it comes to distributed solar is going to hit. And it's fundamentally because distributed solar, developing distributed solar assets in the global sense is just a totally different animal than doing utility scale development. And there's a few reasons for that. You know, one is that it's, it's going to be far more contextual. So the customer and what customers want in different markets varies a lot, which is not necessarily true in utility scale. You know, you just with there, it's, it's all about going in and, and locking in your PPA with your off taker. And there's a tried and true formula for doing that. Internationally with residential customers, some people want PPAs, but don't want long contracts. Some people want loans. Some people want to do cash. There's a lot of different ways that customers would like to purchase the product. And there's a lot of education that has to happen. And customers might stay in their homes for different lengths of time. So maybe they move every five years, so they don't want to sign a 25-year contract. And so you have to ask yourself if you can make it work at a shorter tenor. You know, Maybe they want to do loans, but the local banks aren't really comfortable yet with providing loans to that kind of asset class. Um, mm. And maybe they want to do cash sale, but you're in a market where people don't have very much expendable income. So that's one kind of bucket of challenges. And then there's the financing side and, and learning to meet the kind of requirements that investors have for developing even portfolios of distributed assets in new markets. And then you hit some of the challenges we've already talked about. Currency risk is certainly a big one. What kind of advance rate you can get when you're borrowing money is a really big issue. You know, in these markets, investors want to feel comfortable that they can recuperate their investment if need be. But a lot of times, local markets, especially developing countries, are 
not very favorable when it comes to their legal recourse for a company. So if a company needs to go in and get their solar system back, they just can't do it. You know, it's just it, there's too much bureaucracy uh-huh. and it takes forever to get your system back. So you can't make the argument that if people don't pay, you just shut off the power. Right. So anyways, there's a lot of there's a lot of challenges to making that global business model work. Maybe they need to start building in some kill switches into the inverters or something. Yeah. Yeah. I think that would certainly certainly help. I mean, and that that kind of thing really is something that provides a lot more confidence. But overall, it can be really challenging to get people across the line from a financing standpoint in in developing markets. The other set of issues, of course, is kind of regulatory risk. And the nice thing is that a lot of developing markets are very different from the U.S. in that all the regulators, all the utilities, everybody's on board with the idea of change. And everybody's on board with the idea of new technologies. And everybody's on board with meeting rising demand however they can, which is a very different attitude than we see in the U.S., which can be a lot more calcified around around those kinds of questions. So it's nice that everybody's kind of much more amenable to exploring new options. And we've got that going for us in, in looking at ramping up and developing markets. But the problems that they have sometimes are just deeper than can be solved politically. It's, you know, what are the depth of credit markets? You know, do you have access to right. the equivalent of a FICO score right. in these markets? You, that's not a problem that you can solve overnight or even with political will, right? Yep. So those structural issues can be real barriers. We've talked a lot on this program about the problems of standardizing finance or really standardizing projects so that they look like normal things to finance, especially to the fixed income market. You know, we've talked about uh, the problems of doing that with efficiency, the problems of doing that with, you know, like commercial or, or small utility scale solar projects. And one of these days, I'm going to do a podcast episode and talk about climate bonds and how they're doing that, aka green bonds, to try to make these projects very standardized and follow all the same normal criteria so that the cost of due diligence is low and you can just sort of package it up and make it look like any old regular bond. But that's so much harder in Latin America where where you don't have quite the same certainty around capital markets, around regulation, you know, just the trust that you can give to to financing arrangements and to public markets. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think maybe one of the places where I've really changed my mind, which is it happens a lot more than I would like it to, where I just wake up one day and realized I was just dead wrong about something, is about access to capital. You know, I, I think for a long time, I just thought that the reason renewables aren't taking off or distributed generation isn't taking off is because of if access to capital. It just doesn't have enough access to capital. And I actually don't think that's right anymore. Like, I think there's mm-hmm. plenty of money out there. Money, like, just comes with strings attached. You have to meet certain requirements right. uh, in, order to, in order to get the money. And that's not unreasonable, right? Like, somebody's not going to lend you money if they don't think they're going to get paid back. And that's an okay requirement for them to have in place. So you have to convince them that they're going to get paid back and you have to and you have to give them a level of return that they see as being adjusted to the level of risk that they're taking. You know, nowadays, you know, I don't think that a lot of investors are worried about the technology. We're over that hurdle. They're not worried about investing in solar assets and that they're going to blow up or disappear or stop making sense. I mean, the technology is proven and they trust and they believe that they will get the returns that you're promising them. The problem is, is that you just have that tension between wanting to provide the customer 
with the lowest price electricity you possibly can. And you're always going to be balancing that against the kinds of returns that you can give to investors. And you also just need to be providing electricity to customers who you can be confident are going to, to pay their bills on time. And, and in the US, that's been so easy because we have FICO scores and you can just check and see what their credit history is like. Right. Most developing countries do not have the equivalent of that score. Sometimes they show when people have bad credit, but they don't really show if people have moderate to good credit. Or mm. sometimes the local banks have all that information, but it's not public. Or sometimes there is a credit score market, but it's such a small sample size that it's really not representative at all of, of what those people's credit is actually like because it's not drawing on a long enough history. So even just simple things like that, that's going to be a process of, of getting people across the line. And I think there's creative ways to do it. You can get people to pledge collateral. You can get them to give a prepayment or like a down payment or something like that. You can take advantage of other funding sources within the government or get people to provide grants or investment tax credits so that you can have some monetization up front to kind of leverage you know, the rest of the, the equipment. There's a lot of ways to get around that. But the point is that you just like the money is there. You have access to it. You just have to prove that you're going to be able to provide risk-adjusted returns. And the risks in a lot of these markets are just really high. That's right. I mean, after all, the Latin root of our word credit is credere, which means belief. It's all about trust. It's all about belief. It's all about are you going to get paid? Yeah. So moving on from this sort of financial wonkiness a little bit, I'm, I'm curious to get your outlook on what the real growth potential is in some of these Latin American countries. And then, and then we can talk a bit about sort of the global perspective. So first of all, again, sort of rewinding to 2013, I remember reading back then uh, about some forecasts from International Energy Agency, Navigant Consulting, and others who were just forecasting just this explosive growth for wind and solar in Latin America, especially for Chile. For example, IEA was expecting Chile's solar capacity to explode from 3.5 megawatts in 2013 to 1,100 megawatts in 2018. Are these ultra-bullish forecasts proving out? Well, well, first of all, for once, IEA being bullish on renewables, right? I mean, I wouldn't... I, <laughs> I, I think that they may have finally learned their lesson. Uh, Maybe. But they were actually too conservative yet again because in the Chilean market we've already passed that benchmark and it's only 2016. Really? They're already over a thousand megawatts? Yeah, I think they cleared a thousand megawatts at the end of last year. So, wow. so they've they they're past it. You know, Mexico and Brazil have been much, much slower and there's a lot of reasons for that. In Mexico I think there was a lot of people, myself included, expected that distributed generation would take off in Mexico at a much faster clip than it has. And you've had a lot of political reasons why that has not happened. They have continued to lower electricity tariffs, even though they're losing tons and tons of money to do that because they've promised that electricity tariffs will be lower. And that was the so, rationale. So another, another disastrous subsidy regime, basically? Uh, sort of, yeah. I mean, it, it was more like they, so they said, we're going to reform the energy market. But the only way that they could sell that idea was by promising lower electricity prices. So that's where they left it. And their way of delivering on that was just to lower electricity prices, whatever the cost. So the utility is, you know, racking up year after year with millions and millions and millions of dollars in losses. And I think that a lot of people, myself included, 
did not expect that that was going to go on for as long as it has. Mm. So that's one thing. And then just in general, the energy reform led to a lot of uncertainty around the regulations. So you had kind of lower tariffs than were expected, and you had more uncertainty. And both of those things combined have led to just a slower development of DG in Mexico. But, mm-hmm. you know, I, the eternal optimist, I think we are about to turn the corner on that. And in Brazil, Brazil just has had all sorts of problems that are not just restricted to the energy space, but that have made any kind of foreign direct investment really challenging. So solar hasn't taken off as fast as it was expected to there. But then other places, the Caribbean and Central America have taken off much faster, I think, than, than any of those groups expected them to. And so that's been a real positive, I think, as well. Even Argentina is really teed up for, for a lot of growth, despite overcoming some pretty serious challenges in the, in the international financing arena. But they're putting together some tenders, and I think we'll see a ton of renewable development there over the next year or two, just financed with our Argentinian pesos, I think. Earlier, you mentioned Panama. What's going on there? Yeah. So Panama held an auction and did not really do a whole lot of vetting for who was bidding into the auction. So there was a few companies who did make it through the process who were really solid candidates, solid developers. And then there was a lot of just speculative bids that were speculatively low, right, bids that were kind of unlikely to ever materialize and no surprise have not materialized. So that was a little bit of an issue there. There's also a lot of administrative issues just with coordinating the tender process, which was being done by one agency, and coordinating interconnection to the grid, which was being done by another agency. And they were just kind of talking past each other. So folks who you know, won tenders wound up having a lot of problems with getting interconnection for their projects. So they were in this strange limbo of, of having a PPA, but then not really being able to kind of move ahead. And because the pricing was so low, the PPA pricing was so low, I think a lot of people have just decided that, and there was no kind of bond requirements. They just are, I think some of them are just probably going to wind up walking away from their projects. Gotcha. But Panama continues to be an interesting, an interesting market because it's, it's kind of like hydro and oil, you know, so it's, it's either really cheap or really expensive. And, and even though oil prices are rock bottom levels now, electricity from oil fire generation is still very expensive compared to solar. So I think we will see solar development in the country, especially rooftop solar development in that country over the next year or two. They do have a good DG program in place as well. Yeah. What about Spain? That's been one of the biggest solar adopters in Europe for years. And some years ago, it sort of became the poster child for badly designed feed-in tariffs. And that put a big old hole in the national budget and caused the country a lot of fiscal distress. But it, it seems like Maybe things have stabilized a bit now? Yeah, well, they taught us a valuable lesson about not having the feed-in tariff be written into the national budget and (laughs) therefore kind of exposed to whatever politicians are feeling that day. That's not a good way to structure solar policy, we've learned. Yeah. You know, feed-in tariffs that are are linked to electricity tariffs can be a a little tougher to swallow because consumers see the impact so clearly and so directly, whereas kind of taxing them and then putting it in the budget seems like it's it's going to save you some trouble in terms of consumer perception about what's happening. But it's just much more sustainable to to have the, the feed-in tariff be financed through electricity rates. Which is exactly what Germany did with its feed-in tariff. 
Right. Germany, Japan. You know, we've seen a lot of almost every other country, I believe, has adopted that model. Yeah. But to answer your question, I mean, they've kind of clawed themselves back from the abyss, but now it's not an attractive place to develop still. All they've done is gone from screwing people over to paying them back for screwing them over, but they haven't gotten a place that people really want to invest again. Right. You know, if Argentina has been any lesson, that's probably going to take some time to do to really rebuild the investor trust. Yep. And, you know, especially when there's so many other global opportunities, I mean, just why would you invest there? You right. know, when you have other markets that are, are doing a much better job of inviting foreign investment. Okay, so speaking of those other markets, let's move beyond Latin America here a little bit and talk about kind of the broader trends of distributed generation globally. What are you seeing in the rest of the world? And do you think there are important implications for energy transition in general to the rest of the world's appetite for distributed generation? Yeah, I, I think there's a huge appetite for distributed generation globally. And what we're seeing so far has been that most of the growth in distributed generation has come from local companies that are operating in individual countries who are doing kind of cash sale of systems. And as a result, they're, they're focused really in on these, these high-end consumers who have the disposable income to just buy a solar system and, and put it on their roof flat out. Obviously, that's a limited market. And it, it also is not one that really addresses the root of the growth, which is that in most of these non-OECD markets, you know, which I think you know, is going to be something like 80 to 90% of new electricity demand is coming from there with OECD markets staying mostly flat you know, out to 2040. I mean, there's just a huge amount of growth. And most of that growth is coming because you have rising GDP per capita, which means more and more middle class people, right? More and more middle class people who are getting access to electricity and have a little bit more disposable income. And for those kinds of people, I think the idea of getting a PPA or a lease or, or a loan for putting solar on their roof is going to be really, really attractive, especially because in so many of these markets, they're going to go through a rocky period of growth where they're adding a lot of new capacity and there's you know blackouts and challenges on the grid and things like that. And I think people just will feel much more comfortable making that investment themselves. And you know, if you look at places like Southeast Asia today, most of those businesses and homes that can possibly afford one have a diesel generator already. And I think if you can make solar as accessible as a diesel generator, you will see the same amount of uptick in demand for it. And the utility and the energy regulators and the politicians are all on board with that because what they have seen is that, you know, if you have to add two gigawatts, 20 gigawatts, 50 gigawatts of new capacity in order to meet rising demand in your country, you'll take whatever you can get. And companies like SolarCity have kind of proven that you can develop hundreds of megawatts a quarter of distributed generation if you get the model down right. And that means you're developing it much faster than you could possibly develop utility scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I think that's something that we're going to see much more excitement about, globally speaking, over, over the next few years. And we just have to crack a few of these challenges that we've been talking about on the podcast in order to get there. Financing, financing, financing. It just keeps coming back to that, doesn't it? I mean, the sad fact is it's just cheaper to go buy a little diesel generator and feed a couple gallons into it when the grid goes down than it is to supply yourself with reliable solar power for 20 years. It's just cheaper. 
Yeah, well, I don't know if that's true anymore. I mean, I think that... Well, on an upfront capital cost basis, it's cheaper, right? True. Like on a total cost yeah. of ownership basis over 20 years, it's more expensive. But yeah. it's the, it's right. having to provide that capital upfront that's the killer. And I remember being right. in Bali last summer and seeing just the most bizarre stuff. I mean, they've got, I don't even know what to call it, ganglia of power lines just sort of going everywhere, like being threaded through trees and just run along the top of a wall or whatever, any place they can put a, a cable. And that power is coming from some coal-fired power plant that's causing environmental damage somewhere else in Indonesia. And the power is still unreliable. It goes down. You know, and it's just sort of on and off and on and off. And this is a place where you could almost put up a solar panel anywhere because it's just got so much sunshine year round. And you only need a little bit because they've got high efficiency little refrigerators and little right. LED televisions and whatever. I mean, you know, a kilowatt of power is a lot of power for <laughs> residents in, yeah. in oh, Bali, absolutely. you know, and, and so it really, again, just comes down to a financing problem. Yeah. And the important thing to remember, you know, go to Bali, go to India, go to any of these markets and you see what you just described. And then remember that right now we are just coasting in neutral on a slight decline. Like that's the speed of electricity development there. Yeah. In the next five years, next 10 years, it is going to be like shifting into first and then second and then third and then fourth. I mean, like getting up to 75, 80 miles an hour, it, like the, the pace of expansion in five years compared to what it is today when it comes to expanding access to electricity and developing new new energy assets is unbelievable. And, you know, my, my greatest fear uh, at this point is just that we have not totally reckoned with the fact that these countries that are growing are going to build power one way or the other. They are going to build power and they are going to build whatever they can get. And so it's everyone's job in this industry to make sure that when they are faced with those decisions about what they are going to build, that they build things that are renewable and that they build things that are going to provide a long-term sustainable future. And we don't have a lot of time to figure this out. You know, we're, we're on a pretty short time frame here because these investment decisions are being made today and they last 30 years, right. 40 years. Right. And this whole concept of lock-in is not a hypothetical. You either lock yourself into, if you build a gas plant, you lock yourself into either using it or writing off that asset. And the people who pay for that are consumers. So you're pitting yourself against a lot of inertia from the day that plant gets built if you think one day we'll just be able to write this thing off. So, so I think it's our job in this community to look at these opportunities, these markets that are growing no matter what, and put ourselves in their shoes and say, you know, what do they need in order to make this work? And from the industry perspective, I think what we've learned is that we can absolutely build renewable assets and we can build them faster than, than fossil fuel and they will be better for the customer and they'll be better for the environment. And in general, we don't actually need that many things in order to make it work. We don't always need subsidies. We don't always need handouts in order to make it work. Like there's a very strong business and economic case for developing renewable assets. We just need the policymakers in these countries to kind of sit down with us and ask us what we need, because it's oftentimes things that they could absolutely do or change. And then the other side of it is that we have to acknowledge where there are things that we can't change and where you have these deeper structural issues 
that we need to bring to their attention, but that we recognize they can't solve overnight. And then ask, what can we do to, to start business here anyways? As an example, if there's some kind of problem in that country, you know, the currency, say, is, is all over the place, would the government be willing to offer PPAs in U.S. dollars and then just use their currency reserves to offset some of that risk, some of that well, currency That's a creative risk. idea, yeah. Right? So, like, like create a, a loan loss fund, right? So, like, sure. they acknowledge some people are going to lose money. Just backstop and they, it. But they, yeah. Right, but they backstop that investment because otherwise you just have to ask the banks or the financing partners to make what's basically is a bad investment. You just have to ask them to be willing to lose money to, you know, to price the money to you in a way that is not reflective of the risk in that country. And you can probably make the case, you know, at a national level that it makes sense for the national government to take that kind of risk because of all the other benefits that come from having the certainty of being able to build out a nice, stable, renewable energy capacity. That's right. It's, uh, it's certainly, you know, will be a lot cheaper than, than building transmission lines yeah. all over the country. Um, or just being exposed to fuel price volatility or what have you. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's a there's really there's a thousand reasons to and, right. and even just something as simple as creating a government entity that will buy these assets at a low price, like create a government entity that will accept a five percent return. There you go. Equity, now you're talking. Put a billion dollars into it and tell it to go out into the market and buy the best assets that it can get and be willing to accept a five percent return. And then you have some pull in the market and you're not asking them to lose any money. In fact, they'll be making money. They won't be making much money, but they'll be making some money, right? And I'm just, I'm not, I'm not saying that these are the silver bullets. I'm just saying that like, that we can look at these problems and say, what do we need to do to like wrap ourselves around this issue? And then there are ways to think about it and start setting up some real solutions that are actionable. But we just have to have a much better dialogue, I think, between especially between the government entities, uh, the financing institutions, and the private sector actors, and specific to the countries that we're looking to get involved in, where we, we sit down and really hash out what it is that we need and start putting some concrete ideas on the table. Because the climate agreement was great, but one, it was not enough, and two, all that money that's getting poured into development banks is still is not going to be good enough if you don't have anybody to, to buy the projects on the other end, you know, or and if right. that money doesn't get pointed into and directed in the most efficient way. And personally, like I, I think that developing a multi-gigawatt single power plant in India is a much more complicated venture than developing that exact same amount of distributed generation. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. And you know, your proposal to have the government basically function as a sort of a long-term asset holder makes a lot of sense to me. What is a solar yield co after all? but a vehicle to sit there and be a passive recipient of long-term annuity income from a bunch of little solar projects at, you know, five to 6% per year. That's yeah. what they I are. Mean, it would, it would uh, certainly save a lot of time going around and asking for pension funds to just to, well, to invest exactly, money that way, right? Exactly. And, and the pension funds and the infrastructure funds and the other natural sort of fixed income players in that space won't touch this stuff because the cost of due dilly is too high for them if the project is like a something under $100 million. It's not worth their time. So that's exactly the place where a government could step in or a sovereign wealth fund could step in with some sort of standardized offer 
and just say, you know what, we'll, we'll take your rooftop solar all day long and we'll take our 5% and just go, right? Yeah. And I think they don't, I mean, one counterpoint to that whole proposal is I think that they don't want to undercut local markets, right? They don't want to undercut local players who are looking for 12% returns and they don't want to come in at five and kind of crowd out the market. But I, I think that the point is that you don't need to do that forever. Like you don't need an entity that has $20 trillion and is going to be around for the next 50 years. I think you just need someone there to, you need to just run the numbers on whatever it takes to get to the kinds of returns that investors are looking for in that market. And then figure out if the only way to get there is through lower built cost, ask people in the industry, how long is it going to take you to get there and set up a fund that lasts that long? I, I think that we're in a spot now where it's not about subsidization. It's about building a bridge. Yeah. And that bridge is, is not subsidies, you know, are often taking a loss today because you're expecting a return. It's much greater in the future or a societal return or something that's a little more intangible. Right. This isn't subsidy. This is the, the government leading in a space to kind of help move the market, move the market in the direction that we know that it's already going. It's about accelerating that. But point being that I think there's a lot of ways to do that, setting up some kind of currency reserve fund, loan loss fund, offering to buy the assets, you know, doing regional specific auctions where you set a floor on the auction instead of a ceiling and you make people bid up on quality instead of down on price. There's just a lot of things that we still haven't tried yet. Is right? anybody even thinking about that or doing that? I mean, that's the first time I've ever heard anybody say that. Sort of. I mean, Saudi Arabia in their, um, in their KA care program from two years ago or so. Which is now dead, right? Right. Yeah, they, they had... They had a scoring system where you got a certain score based on your price that you were bidding, but then you got kind of bonus points for using local content and bonus points for using things that met certain performance standards. And, and I'm just, I mean, you know, personally, I think that we need to get to a place where we're really thinking about that more. Like, you know, you get what you pay for. So bidding down is not always good, even just from a grid operator point of view. I, I think that if you bid down to like, let's say you, you know that investors need a return and that dropping below $90 a megawatt hour means that they won't get the return that they need. So you set the floor at 90 and you let people bid down to 90 and then you have a scoring system for module performance, for inverter performance, for adding storage and providing power, firm power during certain hours of the day. Right. For being willing to accept longer contracts. Sure. You know, I think there's a lot of things that you could put in there that you care about as a grid operator, like where you put the project. Maybe you give people bonus points for being in particular locations where you know that you don't want to build as much transmission. So you'd rather have distributed assets there and you recognize that putting them there will save you $500 million on a new transmission line. So it's worth spending right. $400 million on a PPA with that generator or whatever it may be. Basic locational marginal pricing. Yeah, but from a system planning point of view instead right. of from a market point of view. Um, right. I mean, I just there's a lot of things like this from an auction standpoint that I think countries could do as well that would really help to move the market in a in a more sustainable direction. Really interesting ideas. That's the kind of spitballing we need. We need a little out of the box thinking here, especially if, as you say, we're we're basically just rolling down a slight incline in neutral. We need to be stepping on the gas here. We've, we haven't really mentioned it here, but I think anyone listening to this podcast would certainly feel the pressure of climate change hanging over us. We're not doing this just because it's fun. We're doing it because we have a, 
a very urgent problem we're trying to solve here. And we need to accelerate it. I, you know, and I don't, frankly, I don't know if I quite share your confidence that we're going to be going straight into first, second, and third gear on this. I, I kind of wonder where you get that. Well, I meant, I mean, the pace of acceleration for power development is going to speed up, not necessarily that it's going to be renewable. Okay. I'm saying it's going to speed up either way. We can either figure out a way to get on board or we are going to be left behind. So demand for electricity in these markets is going up hockey stick style out to 2040. And there's nothing that we can do about that. So it's just a question of what are they going to build? So I guess I wish I was being more optimistic about that. I, I actually am pretty optimistic, I think, overall. But that's because, because I think that although these are very complicated problems, there's a lot of very smart people who are working on them. And every year, the renewable news coming out of the renewable industry has been better than the year before. And every year, there's something that happens in the industry that we couldn't have imagined five years ago. Hmm. And if that's happened every year and every five years, looking back for 10, 15, you know, 20 years now, I, I just I can't help but feel like that's the pattern we've set. And so five years from now, something will have happened that we could not have possibly imagined happening in today's market. And I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to what that is. I mean, it doesn't happen in a vacuum, but I think that we've got enough people who care about this stuff and and frankly, like, you know, we're, we're at a place now where you can make money off of solar. You can make money developing it. You can make money buying it. The market's kind of waking up to that fact. And so I, I think that we've got, like, when you've got the forces of good on your side and you can make money, it makes it a lot more compelling. And I think probably that five-year surprise for us is going to be the impact that storage has on markets, both in, uh, in terms of kind of demand and in terms of the cascading effect that that has on how markets are regulated and managed. That's an interesting conjecture. Are you, are you thinking about lithium-ion batteries when you say storage or what? Yeah, yeah. I think distributed generation storage, you know, we're seeing that it's already economic in some of the markets that if you draw like a little LCOE chart, it's already economic in some of the markets that would have been the closest to the frontier. And I, I think that the next three years, within a, a five-year window, certainly, that is going to be something that totally changes the game. And you can think about it from a demand point of view, like it will open up new markets, a new set of services that customers will be interested in as long as the price is right. But you can also look at it from the, from the market structure and regulation standpoint of like, of, of what do you do when you no longer have this supply demand sequencing problem? Like what do you do when you really have a grid that can genuinely be responsive to demand. How does that alter the way that you think about yeah. the assets on the grid? Yeah, And that's an incredibly, incredibly exciting place to be. And I think... Well, it eliminates just about every argument against renewable energy, for one thing. Yeah, yeah. And it also is a, it, it creates a fundamental shift in power, right? That's right. The, the consumer is empowered in that scenario. And you have what I think of as being clean energy constituencies that are getting larger and larger and larger. And, you know, if you remember in the U.S. elections back when Mitt Romney was trying to kill, you know, the ITC and calling to the handout, and then you had Chuck Grassley pushing back on him because he's got several thousand Iowans out there with, with wind in their backyards who are pretty pissed about what Mitt Romney's saying, you saw a very quick sea change, right, in, in how the Republican Party talked about and responded to 
the investment tax credit. I think that once you get solar and you get storage on millions and millions and millions of roofs across the world, that becomes political power. And I don't think we've fully appreciated what that kind of political power will do in an era where climate change is getting forced into the public discourse in a much more profound way. So I, I anticipate that, that we've got all the winds are at our back when it comes to those things. And we've been so used to being the, the small fish in the big pond, you know, against fossil fuel industry and larger power generators. It's not going to be that way forever. I would be surprised if it's that way through the end of the decade. Yeah, I think you're right about that. You're reminding me of uh, something that Jigger Shah said on the Energy Gang podcast about how solar is so used to being the the David against the Goliath, but now it's really the Goliath. Yeah, and I mean, even in the the nerdiest way that you can imagine, I mean, you know, the people that are on public utility commissions in the United States today are a lot of them are utility CEOs because that's who's the best man for the job, right? They're the ones who understand it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, in the next five to 10 years, we're going to have our first crop of utility scale solar CEOs rolling off their commitments in their company and looking for work. And I would be very surprised if we don't wind up with a lot of people in those regulatory positions who are strong advocates and believers in distributed generation and then utility scale solar and wind, because that's what they know. And I think that's the kind of subtle shift that's going to happen over the next five to 10 years that will ultimately move things in a much more positive direction for the entire country in the U.S. and overseas. As I said, I think, you know, I've been incredibly encouraged by the attitude that regulators and utilities have in, in developing markets towards these kinds of issues. I think they're really they're in the right place and they just need to, to find a way to make it work. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right about that. And I think you're also right about the fact that the effect that the shift in political power could have on the pace of energy transition could be just remarkable. I don't think anybody's really pricing that in appropriately. And speaking of price, how about the the notion that solar and wind are going to become the cheapest new form of energy that anyone can build anywhere in the world by 2020? I mean, that conjecture has been out there for a couple of years now, and I think it's probably right. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think that we're also, you know, we're assuming a business as usual scenario here. It's also certainly possible, we should, we should entertain the possibility that oil prices will go higher than they are today, that coal <laughs> prices will go higher than they are today. And I only mentioned oil, just actually, I should just say this, in case anyone who's in Wall Street is listening to this, like that the relationship between oil and solar is not as clear cut as you may think based on stock fluctuations <laughs> in solar stocks when oil goes up and down. Yeah. But well, in the United States, uh, the electricity has nothing to do with oil. Then, you know, that's exactly and, right. and in island but, nations, it has everything to do with it. And that's very complicated. Yeah. Yes, that's right. But I, I would say that there are some places where it does matter. And that'll be the Middle Eastern countries and the Caribbean. Right. And in those places, if the price of oil goes up, the competitiveness of solar will increase radically and dramatically because those are markets where they still do a lot of oil-fired electricity generation. And that, that value proposition looks terrible when you double oil prices. And I think those countries absolutely recognize that and are, and are seeking to make investments to hedge against that possibility. Yep. But, you know, and, and a lot of Southeast Asia too, actually, you know, running on diesel gen sets. So, and Africa. So, you know, while oil doesn't mean a lot for solar today, 
oil going up means a lot for solar growth in the future, I think. And there's a lot of reasons why that may be the case as well. Mm-hmm. Really interesting outside the box thoughts there, Adam. I dig it. Yeah. Well, I think we've come pretty close to solving all of the possible problems that exist in the industry today. I'm trying to think if there's anything notable that we've left out. Well, again, I I just think financing is really the key. I've been saying for years and years and years that if I could get unlimited capital and give them a 5% return that I could change the world. And that's really what it comes down to. You don't want to go long on coal? Yeah, no. No, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, maybe a low probability, but... Dude, I I don't even want their top-rated debt. I don't want anything to do with it. I just, no, no. It's done. Coal is done. Yeah. We just need to figure out how to accelerate renewables here. And I think you've got some pretty interesting ideas on that. I hope you'll keep developing those and uh, maybe come back and share with us some fresh thoughts on a future podcast. Yeah. Well, I will keep coming back as long as you keep telling me I'm right about stuff. Um, <laughs> that's, my, that's my main criteria. Um, no, it's been great. I, I really appreciate the kind of the, the depth of conversation here. And you know, and the issues that you regularly tackle on this show. I mean, I think that these are all the right questions and they will ultimately be the most important questions of our time. You know, I sure think so. (laughs) Energy is kind of the, it's the hidden secret. You know, anybody who works in the energy industry for a period of time feels like this is fundamental to everything we do. And anybody who doesn't work in energy just kind of takes it totally for granted, but it's the backdrop for the climate challenge. Absolutely. Yeah. And between power generation and transportation, which may ultimately also wind up becoming all about power generation if electric vehicles accelerate. This is really the lever. You know, This is the lever for affecting climate change, and we need to take it seriously. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Adam, thanks a lot for being on the show. I really appreciate it. This has been fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Already looking forward to next time. That was Adam James, Deputy Director of Global Strategy and Policy at Solar City, speaking with us in a personal capacity from San Francisco. I think Adam made a great point about solar prices. It's great that the contracts are now going for four to six cents per kilowatt hour in Mexico for solar and wind, and for six to seven cents in Chile, and for eight to 10 cents in Brazil. Those prices are all going to be competitive with fossil fuels, and they bode well indeed for energy transition in those countries. But at the same time, low PPA prices are only an indication of success to the extent that they're low because costs are falling. If prices are low because developers are accepting unrealistically low returns or relying heavily on subsidies, it won't lead to a sustainable market and it won't help transition in the long run. I found it particularly interesting that China is bidding PPA prices by the time of day for two reasons. One, it will make for a very sophisticated, mature, and more finely tuned market that accurately represents real costs and values. That will not only make it easier for grid planners and operators to accommodate the generation, but it will also ensure that only serious bids are received. And two, we might expect that this kind of discrete costing will mesh with dynamic utility rate structures, which vary by the time of day, and might eventually even vary by the specific place where power is consumed, or by the purpose for which it's being used. That's all a little bit in the future yet, but I don't think it's that far in the future, and I think we'll really begin to see it taking off as electric vehicles become bigger players on the grid. The grid of the future will be dynamic and flexible and adaptive on both the supply and demand sides, 
and Chile's auction mechanism is really far-sighted in that sense. And I particularly liked Adam's ideas about ways that developing countries could support renewable energy deployment by federally backstopping the fluctuation of their currencies, or by creating a federal fund to finance projects and holding them for 20 or 30 years and taking a modest 5% return that private capital markets might not accept as a way of kickstarting their domestic renewable energy deployment. If the real obstacles to energy transition in Latin America and elsewhere are mainly financial, and I believe they are, then they can be fixed with the stroke of a pen if the right people have the will to do it. But in general, I agree with Adam here. The case for renewables in the developing world is very strong indeed, and their potential to execute energy transition is real, very real. And there are lots of hard and interesting problems to be solved where creative young thinkers can really make their mark in the world and accomplish a great deal. It may surprise listeners to learn that Adam is still in his 20s. And so I hope that some other listeners out there, also in their 20s, will take some inspiration from this interview, look up the Clean Energy Leadership Institute that Adam founded, apply for one of their 14-week fellowship programs, and enlist themselves in this very exciting project of leading energy transition in the developing world. We'll link to their site in the show notes, because energy transition needs all the young, energetic, creative help it can get. Do you enjoy the Energy Transition Show enough to buy me a beer once a month as a way of saying thanks? If so, since it's a little impractical for all of you to actually physically buy me a beer in person, although I would love that, then would you consider paying $5 a month for a subscription to this show? We aim to produce a very high quality product, and it takes a good deal of time and effort to do that. At some point, perhaps later this fall, we will be looking to start bringing in revenue in order to make all this effort sustainable and keep putting out a quality product. And we'd rather do that on a subscription basis, if possible, than subject our listeners to more bloody advertising. So, if you value this show enough to pay $5 a month for it, which would give you access to two full episodes per month, plus some other goodies, we'd like to hear from you. Or, if you have other price points in mind or other ideas, we'd like to hear those too. You can send us a note using the comment form at the bottom of each episode's page, or just drop me an email to chris at energytransitionshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item one. In episode 11, we discussed how India might find it easier and more cost-effective to bring power to those who don't have it using renewables than with the large centralized power stations that have long been the centerpiece of its grid expansion planning. 
Now, a new report from India's power ministry finds that the country won't need any new large power plants for the next three years, even though a third of its people still lack access to electricity, because the rest of the distribution system and power markets are unable to accommodate more supply. The nation's 300 gigawatts of existing power plants are only operating at 64% capacity factor, of which about a tenth, or 30 gigawatts, are essentially stranded capacity due to a lack of PPAs, with another 50 gigawatts still under construction. Meanwhile, 175 gigawatts of renewable capacity is still being planned. Item 2. India has struck a $1 billion alliance with the U.S., which will employ two so-called innovative investment mechanisms aimed at off-grid solar projects and rural electrification. A modest amount of financing from U.S. and Indian federal agencies will be leveraged to raise private capital to finance rooftop solar systems, off-grid solar projects, mini-grids for rural areas, and subsidies for economically disadvantaged regions. At the same time, the government has set a target of having 100 gigawatts of solar by 2022, which would be a massive and rapid expansion considering that the country only has about 7 gigawatts now. On the whole, I think the situation in India supports what we said in episode 11. Coal plants are too centralized and resource intensive to meet India's needs, and soon they will just be more expensive than solar arrays anyway. Meanwhile, solar will charge ahead, enabled by the kind of innovative financing support that Adam and I discussed in this episode. Item 3. Exelon, the largest electric holding company in the United States and the operator of the largest fleet of nuclear plants, has lost its bid to get a legislation passed in Illinois, which would have created a special subsidy to keep two of its nuclear plants in that state running. Illinois lawmakers adjourned a gridlocked legislative session, which failed to even produce a state budget, while voting on the Exelon bill. The Quad Cities and Clinton plants, with a combined capacity of nearly 3 gigawatts, have struggled to compete in electricity markets as cheap wind and natural gas generation drove power prices down. Exelon says the two plants have lost a combined $800 million in the past seven years. As a result, Exelon has announced that it will close the Clinton plant in June 2017 and the Quad Cities plant in June 2018. It will be instructive to see how Illinois adapts to the loss of that much power. My bet is that efficiency and new wind generation will be key parts of the solution. Item 4. Fannie Mae, the mortgage giant, is now offering the lowest cost of capital for new solar installations, currently in the mid-3% range, fixed. The so-called home-style energy mortgage enables a home buyer or a mortgage refinancer to add the solar system after the mortgage loan has closed. This is done by allowing up to 15% of the as-completed home value to be used to pay for the cost of a solar system, with funds escrowed by the lender and gives the homeowner 180 days after the closing date to have the solar system installed. This has the potential to double or even triple the number of residential rooftop solar systems in the U.S., and in my opinion, is a long overdue offering from the government-sponsored entity because it leverages its ultra-low cost of capital to provide a significant social benefit without being structured as a subsidy. So this is a great development for energy transition in the U.S., but it also represents a serious threat to third-party solar leasing companies like SolarCity, whose cost of capital will be higher and whose value proposition is now likely to be called into question. And finally, item five. 
A monkey fell on a transformer at a hydroelectric power station in Kenya last week, which caused a transformer to trip, shutting down 180 megawatts of power and then triggering a blackout across Kenya that lasted for four hours. Unlike the grid, the monkey survived. In my view, it's just one more reason for African countries to reach directly for a next-generation grid architecture built around distributed microgrids instead of the centralized hub-and-spoke design of grids like the ones in developed countries. It took many years of monkeying around to keep the U.S. grid from falling down when an outage like that occurred, and developing countries could just skip it. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. Our theme music was by Mike Sugar and Mark Burnfield, who you can find online at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.